This is Space Time, Series 19, Episode 78, for broadcast on the 4th of November 2016. Space Time is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You can download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast just about everywhere, including iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Bytes.com, YouTube, SoundCloud, Audioboom, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. The show is also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science 360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. Coming up on Space Time, Proxima Centauri more like the sun than previously thought. New Horizons finally completes its epic data transfer following last year's historic close encounter with Pluto, and a dangerously close asteroid flyby scrapes past Earth. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. A new study claims Proxima Centauri is far more sun-like than previously thought. The findings indicate our nearest stellar neighbour other than the Sun undergoes similar magnetic cycles to the Sun, which however are far more dramatic. Back in August, astronomers announced that Proxima Centauri hosts an Earth-sized planet called Proxima b in its habitable zone. Proxima Centauri is located 4.2 light-years away and it's part of the Alpha Centauri triple star system. The system consists of Alpha Centauri A and B, which orbit each other and which in turn are orbited by the third star, Proxima Centauri. At first glance, Proxima Centauri seems nothing like our Sun. It's a small, cool, red dwarf spectral type M star, only about a tenth the mass of the Sun and with just a thousandth the luminosity. However, new research shows that it's sun-like in one surprising way, namely in that it has a regular cycle of star spots. Like sunspots, star spots are dark blotches on the surface of a star, where temperatures are just a little bit cooler than the surrounding area. Star spots are driven by magnetic fields. A star is made of ionised gases called plasma, and magnetic fields can restrict this plasma's flow, creating spots. Changes in a star's magnetic field can affect the number and distribution of star spots. Our sun, for example, experiences an 11-year solar cycle. At solar minimum, which is where we're heading now, the Sun is nearly, if not completely, spot-free. While at solar maximum, typically more than 100 sunspots can cover almost one full percent of the Sun's surface on average. Now a new study, reported in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, claims Proxima Centauri undergoes a similar star-spot cycle, lasting seven years from peak to peak. However, unlike our local star sunspots, star-spots on Proxima Centauri are far more dramatic. At least 20%, a full fifth of the star's surface, can be covered by star spots at one time. Also, some of these spots can be far larger relative to the star's size than sunspots on the Sun. The study's lead author, Bradwood Gillen, from the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, says if intelligent aliens were living on Proxima b, they'd be in for a very dramatic view. Astronomers are surprised to detect a stellar activity cycle on Proxima Centauri because spectral type M red dwarfs have interiors which are very different to that of the Sun. The outer third of the Sun experiences convection similar to boiling water in a pot, and below that there's a radiative zone extending from the bottom of the convection zone down to the top of the solar core. This radiative zone is thought to be relatively still, so that means there's a difference in the speed of rotation between these two regions. 
and many astronomers think that their shear arising from this difference is responsible for generating the Sun's magnetic activity cycle. In contrast, the interior of a small red dwarf like Proxima Centauri should be convective all the way to the star's core. As a result, it shouldn't experience any regular cycle activity. The study's co-author Jeremy Drake from the Smithsonian Institute says the existence of a cycle on Proxima Centauri shows that science doesn't really fully understand yet how stellar magnetic fields are generated. The team detected the activity cycle using a combination of ground-based observations from the All-Sky Automated Survey combined with space-based X-ray measurements by several different satellites including SWIFT, Chandra and the XMM-Newton. The study doesn't address whether Proxima Centauri's activity cycle would affect the potential habitability of the planet Proxima b. Theories suggest that flares and stellar wind, both of which are driven by magnetic fields, should scour the planet, stripping away in the atmosphere. If that's the case, then Proxima b might well be like the Earth's moon, located in the habitable zone, but not at all friendly to life. Direct observations of Proxima b won't happen for a long time. Until then, science's best bet is to keep studying the star and then plug that information into theories about star-planet interactions. NASA's New Horizons mission has reached a major milestone, with the final bits of science data from the historic July 2015 Pluto flyby finally transmitted back to Earth. The valuable information had been stored on the spacecraft's digital recorders since last year's close encounter, mission managers being forced to drip-feed the data back to Earth because of the huge distances involved. Having travelled from the New Horizons spacecraft over 5 billion kilometres, some 5 hours and 8 minutes at light speed, the final data sequence from the Pluto-Sharon flyby was sent to NASA's Deep Space Communications Station at Canberra, from where it was passed on to mission operations at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory in Laurel, Maryland. It was the last of well over 5 gigabytes of Pluto system data transmitted to Earth by New Horizons over the past 15 months. New Horizons principal investigator Alan Stern from the Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, Colorado, says the Pluto system data collected by New Horizons has amazed scientists over and over again with the beauty and complexity of Pluto and its system of moons. Researchers are still sifting through the reams of data that had already arrived from New Horizons prior to this final download. In fact, over 400 scientific observations have now been sent to Earth. Because it only had one shot at its target, New Horizons was designed to gather as much data as it could as quickly as it could, taking about a hundred times more data on closest approach to Pluto and its moons than what it could have sent home before flying onwards. The spacecraft was programmed to send select high-priority data sets home in the days just before and after close approach, and then began returning the vast amount of remaining stored data from September 2015 until now. Scientists will now conduct a final data verification review. They'll then begin the task of erasing the two onboard recorders and clearing space for new data to be taken during New Horizons' Kuiper-built extended mission, which will include a series of distant Kuiper-built object observations and a close encounter with a small Kuiper-built object 2014 MU69 on January 1st, 2019.
Meanwhile, data from earlier New Horizons Pluto downloads is continuing to provide surprising discoveries. Following recent revelations that Pluto contains a large subsurface liquid water ocean and earlier discoveries of cryogenic ice volcanoes and blue Plutonian skies, scientists have now confirmed the dwarf planet has some of the brightest spots in the solar system, reflecting an amazing 100% of all the light they receive. Researchers believe these bright spots are likely caused by plumes erupting through geysers from yet more subsurface oceans. Astronomers have also detected what they believe could be Earth-like clouds in Pluto's atmosphere. That's in addition to the earlier detection of haze high above Pluto. New Horizons lead investigator Alan Stern says the data seems to point to the possible presence of clouds from condensation that forms around dawn and dusk. He says if these in fact are clouds, that means weather on Pluto would be far more complex than scientists had imagined. What it all means is that far from being a boring world frozen in time, the more scientists are learning about the Pluto system, the more fascinating it looks. Meanwhile, Pluto's binary partner and largest moon, Charon, has also continued to yield new results about itself as the data comes in. The latest evidence is of possible landslides on Charon's surface. That's interesting because none have been detected on Pluto itself. Scientists have seen similar landslides in other rocky and icy worlds, such as Mars and Saturn's moon Iapetus. But these are the first landslides seen so far from the Sun. Other new images have revealed methane snow caps on the edge of a region of Pluto shrouded in darkness during the flyby. Scientists think these peaks could provide an insight into the type of landscape hidden in the shadows from New Horizons cameras. The southernmost part of Pluto seen by New Horizons contains a range of fascinating geological features. The area is southwest of the vast nitrogen ice plains in formerly previously named Sputnik Planum and now formerly renamed Sputnik Planitia to more accurately reflect the low elevation of the plains. The chain of bright mountains which extend to the north reveal themselves as snow-capped, something hauntingly familiar to Earth-based landscapes. However, New Horizons compositional data indicates the bright snow-capped material covering these mountains isn't water but atmospheric methane that's condensed as frost under these surfaces at high elevation. Between some of the mountains are sharply cut valley systems some tens of kilometres long. Scientists think flowing nitrogen ice once covered this area, perhaps when the ice in Spartan was at a higher elevation, and this nitrogen ice is thought to have eventually carved out these valleys. The area is also marked by strangely shaped flat floor depressions, some more than 80 kilometres wide and up to 3 kilometres deep. The great widths and depths of these depressions suggest that they may well have formed when the surface collapsed rather than through the sublimation of ice into the atmosphere. The mysteries of Pluto continue. If you've ever checked out our space-time blog on Tumblr, and I urge you to do so, you'll see our daily updates on near-Earth asteroid close encounters. There are lots of near-Earth or near-Earth objects out there, some of which get uncomfortably close to the Earth. Luckily, most of them miss us, and those that don't are usually fairly small. However, one of those really close encounters has just happened, with an asteroid named 2016 VA zooming past the Earth between about 75,000 and 96,000 kilometres above the ground early on the morning of November 1st. The 22-metre-wide space rock rocketed past the planet at over 21 kilometres per second just hours after first being spotted by the Mount Lemmon Sky Survey in Arizona. Unlike the United States, Australia doesn't have an asteroid early warning system. 
it's a question of government priorities. You see, an Australian asteroid watch program would cost almost as much as a politician's overseas study junket, I mean tour, or for that matter, about a quarter the cost of a treasury cost-cutting seminar recently held in Paris. So, like the dinosaurs before them, our politicians will just have to keep hoping there's nothing dangerous in the southern skies. SpaceX says it hopes to be back in the air before the end of the year. The company is continuing to work with NASA and the Federal Aviation Administration to determine the cause of September's launch pad explosion at the Cape Canaveral Air Force Base in Florida, which destroyed a Falcon 9 rocket and its satellite payload. The massive blast ripped through Space Launch Complex 40 during fueling for a static fire test of the Falcon 9's main engines, usually a routine pre-launch procedure for Falcon 9 missions. As well as ripping apart the launch vehicle, the explosion also destroyed Spacecom's $200 million Amos 6 telecommunications satellite, which the Israeli firm was launching for Facebook. At the moment, flight engineers are concentrating on a possible breach of the rocket's upper-stage helium pressurization system located inside the upper-stage liquid oxygen tank. The helium is used to maintain constant tank pressure during engine burns. SpaceX says attention has continued to narrow to one of the three composite overwrap pressure vessels inside the liquid oxygen tank. They say tests have been able to recreate the exact failure that occurred by simply modifying the temperature and pressure at which the helium is loaded into the tank. The company says that pending the results of the investigation, SpaceX for the moment at least is continuing to work towards returning to flight status before the end of the year. However, getting its operations up and running again in less than four months is going to be a massive task. The last time a Falcon 9 crashed and burned back in 2015, it took over six months before flights resumed. And some say this latest incident could well keep the Hawthorne, California-based company grounded for up to a year. And that's a real problem because SpaceX has had a busy year so far, with eight flights launched before the disaster and a crowded end-of-year manifest. It had planned to launch the first of a new generation of Iridium telecommunications satellites from the Vandenberg Air Force Base in California just days after the Amos 6 mission. And the company's new super heavy lift launch vehicle, the Falcon Heavy, which is capable of lifting 53 tons into low Earth orbit, was also slated for its maiden flight before the end of this year. Time now for November Skywatch. And just like October, November sees three major meteor showers. The November Orionids, the Taurids and the Leonids. Although peaking in late October, the Orionids are continuing to sprinkle down during the start of November and are usually at their best in the wee hours before dawn. As we mentioned last month, they're generated by the debris trail left behind by the comet Halley and they appear to radiate out from the direction of the constellation Orion the Hunter. The Taurids meteor shower are generated by the comet Enki, and as their name suggests, they appear to radiate out from the constellation Taurus the Bull. Enki and the Taurids are believed to be the remnants of a much larger comet which disintegrated over the past 20 to 30,000 years, breaking into several pieces and releasing material both by normal cometary activity and also by close encounters with the gravitational tidal forces of the Earth and other planets. 
This cometary stream of material is in fact the largest in the inner solar system. Being so spread out, the Earth takes several weeks to pass through it all, causing an extended period of meteor activity compared with the much smaller periods of activity for other meteor showers. These interactions with the planets, especially Jupiter, have caused the torrids to be segmented into separate northern and southern streams. The southern torrids usually last from around September the 25th to about November the 25th, while the northern torrids go from October the 12th to around December the 2nd. The torrids are also quite diffuse, usually producing only about 7 meteors per hour. However, they are composed of more massive material than most, pebbles instead of dust grains. So they tend to produce a high percentage of very bright meteors known as fireballs, produced by the larger meteoroids burning through the atmosphere. The southern torrids should put on their best show just after midnight on November the 5th. Finally, there's the Leonids meteor shower, which will peak around November the 18th. It's usually fairly reliable, producing at least 15 meteors an hour. However, it's been known to occasionally produce some incredibly spectacular meteor storms, with showers in 1999, 2001 and 2002, each producing up to 3,000 Leonid meteors an hour. And then there's that famously in its meteor shower of 1966, said to have generated thousands of meteors, not per hour, but per minute, falling like illuminated rain. The Leonids are usually picked up after midnight, with peaks occurring just before dawn. Produced by debris from the comet Temple Tuttle, the Leonids, as their name suggests, radiate out from the constellation Leo the Lion. The Leonids are also a fast-moving stream which encounter the Earth at speeds of up to 72 kilometers per second. Larger Leonids, which are about 10 millimeters across, can have a mass of half a gram and are known for generating bright meteors. The annual Leonid meteor shower can be so dense, it's been known to deposit an estimated 12 to 13 tons of particles across the planet. November is also a great time to check out the Pleiades, or Seven Sisters, one of the nearest open star clusters to the Earth. Depending on whose measurements you prefer, the Pleiades are between 118 and 137 parsecs away, a parsec being about 3.26 light years. Also known as M45, the Pleiades are located in the constellation Taurus the Bull and are composed of mostly hot blue-white stars. Amazingly, different cultures in vastly different parts of the world have all described the Pleiades as seven women or seven sisters, indicating a possible ancient throwback to early human civilization. November will also provide sky watches with our nearest perigee full moon in nearly 70 years. Often referred to these days as a supermoon, the November perigee full moon will occur at 52 minutes past midnight Australian Eastern Daylight Time on the morning of November 15th. The last perigee full moon was on October the 6th and the next will be on December the 14th. Of course, full moons happen every month when the moon is directly opposite the sun in the Earth's sky. Lunar perigees occur because the moon's orbit around the Earth isn't perfectly circular but slightly elliptical. That means at one point in its orbit, known as perigee, the moon's just a little bit closer to the Earth than average and so it looks about 14% bigger and about 30% brighter while at another point in its orbit it's a bit further away than average, known as apogee, and so it looks a bit smaller than normal. The difference between lunar perigee and lunar apogee is about 48,280 kilometres. The November 14 full moon occurs within two hours of perigee, arguably making it an extra supermoon. In fact, the last time the full moon was seen this close to Earth was in January 1948, and it won't come this close again until the 25th of November 2034. Jonathan Nally is the editor of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, and he joins us now to check out the rest of the night skies on Skywatch November. Well, we'll start with the Southern Cross. It's the most famous constellation in the Southern Sky, of course. Everyone wants to see the Southern Cross. People come down from the Northern Hemisphere just to see the Southern Cross. But unfortunately, if you're around this time of the year, it's, it's probably the wrong time to see it, because at this time of the year, it's upside down. 
and it's very low down on the southern horizon. In fact, if you're in the sort of northern half of Australia, or equivalent latitudes anywhere else around the southern hemisphere, it's, it's pretty much out of view for most of the night because it dips down below the horizon. Yeah, this time I always start to look for Orion as my signpost to traipse around the sky. Well, it's funny you mention that because that's the next thing I was going to oh, say. That, all right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, rising in the east around about 11 o'clock or so at night, is Orion and for us in the southern hemisphere with summer coming on this says to us stargazers hey summer's coming and you know these fantastic constellations to see on these beautiful lovely warm nights that we get uh, you know clear skies and it's going to be tremendous for our um, cousins in the northern hemisphere Orion means oh winter's coming <laughs> and if you want to enjoy these fantastic constellations, you're going to have to really rug up. Yeah, zero um, but... degrees on the Kazakhstan steppe the other day for the landing of the Soyuz capsule from the International Space Station with the Expedition 49 crew. Zero degrees, huh? Mm. Yeah, I think I prefer Sydney's 25 at the moment. <laughs> Kazakhstan, lovely place, but zero degrees? No, you can keep that, thank you very much. Anyway, Orion, look, you can't miss it. Out there in the east, it's, got, it's, it's famous because it's got three stars in a straight line, all very close together, and then there's another star, sort of a bright star above it, above that little set of three stars, called Rigel, or Rigel, which is a really nice, big, bright star, and down below it, sort of same distance the other direction, is a big, bright red star called Betelgeuse, the famous Betelgeuse star. Don't say it three times. <laughs> no, and, and look, and, and if, you, if you've got a pair of binoculars or something, or a little telescope, have a look at that line of three stars, and then just go above it a little bit and you'll see there's a little smudge you can see the little smudge just with the naked eye if you've got a dark sight get some binoculars or a telescope onto it and you'll see that it's the famous orion nebula and, and it's the most amazing thing people in the northern hemisphere they they very often consider it the best nebula you can see in the sky for them and it certainly is fantastic for us down here in the south i think many astronomers would say the eta carina nebula down in the far south of the southern sky which you can't see from the north is probably better but orion is so famous and so marvelous that uh, if you get a chance to have a look at it please do so it's a huge cloud of gas and dust about 1500 light years away and it's what astronomers call a star birth region because uh, lots of new star systems are being born out of this gas and dust and, and just to the right of Orion if you forget east and west and that sort of thing just up or down left or right to around to the right of Orion a little bit there's a bright star a very bright star in fact it's the brightest star in the night sky and that's Sirius so it's also rising around about 11 o'clock at the beginning of November actually two stars Sirius A and Sirius B yeah yeah one of them's a white dwarf one's a white dwarf yep and, and Sirius is known as the dog star because it's the brightest star in the constellation of Canis Major or the Greater Dog. For us, this means the summer constellations are coming along and the nice warm evenings so you can stay up late and look at the sky because it's not too cold. And listen to space time. And listen to space time or, or get out there with a torch and read Australian Sky Telescope magazine. Exactly. Now, for the planets, Venus is still the star of the show at the moment. It's shining brightly out in the west after sunset. You can't miss it. I just said that Sirius is the brightest star in the sky, or well, Venus is the brightest planet in the sky. In fact, Venus is brighter than, than Sirius, but it's a different part of the sky. So um, look for that. You just simply can't miss it. Now, just down below Venus is Saturn, the planet Saturn. Again, just looks like a star, a fairly, fairly bright star with a slightly yellowish tinge. Now, that's interesting because both Venus and Saturn are in the news right now. As we mentioned earlier in today's edition of Space Time, data from ESA's Venus Express mission has turned up fresh evidence supporting the idea of recent volcanic activity on the planet. And NASA have also just announced next year's planned end-of-mission sequence for the Cassini spacecraft, which has been studying the ring world of Saturn and its moon since 2004. That's what I like to do is actually, when you look at these planets, stop and think, hey, there are spacecraft up there, and they're circling around there, and they're hundreds of millions of miles away or something. Now, the planet Mercury, which has been out of view for a while in the glare of the sun, it's starting to appear again in our evening sky, also out to the west, 
but low down on the western horizon. So you'll need a pretty clear view in order to see it. So try and find somewhere where you don't have trees or hills or buildings in the way. Get up you know, on top of a hill or something so you can get a good clear view to the west. Mars is up there too, higher than all those other planets I've just described. It's up higher in the western sky. It looks like a sort of a reddish coloured star. Now if you're an early riser, the planet to watch in the morning sky is Jupiter, which is rising about an hour before sunrise at the moment and a little earlier each day. So as the month goes on, if you go out at the same time, every morning Jupiter will be a little bit higher in the sky so look for it out to the east before dawn it's really quite specky now there's a meteor shower famous meteor shower happens every November it goes from about November 15 to 20 with the maximum usually on the night of uh, November 17 it's called the Leonid meteor shower because the meteors appear to come from the constellation of Leo and normally it's, it's pretty good in some years you get a meteor storm out of the Leonids although it's not expected this year or any any years soon unfortunately this year the moon's going to interfere with it because the moon's going to be up uh, and very bright and what happens when the moon is up is the moonlight stops the sky from being pitch black the sky is actually sort of a charcoalish sort of color it's not actually pitch black at all and this means that the fainter meteors uh, get drowned out there they're harder to see and if you live in the city well you're really behind the eight ball to start with because you've already got light pollution to contend with so don't expect probably too much from the Leonid meteor shower this year, but um, never mind. Uh, there's plenty of other things to see in the night skies. We just said all those planets and Orion rising in the east and Sirius there and all these other beautiful summer constellations that are going to be coming along in the next couple of months. That's Jonathan Nally, the editor of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine. And that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audioboom, and from SpaceTimeWithStuartGary.com. The show's also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. This is Space Time with Stuart Gary. For more, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr. Just search for Space Time with Stuart Gary.